Trump wants McConnell out and Californians keep Newsom in. This week on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 374 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. If there's one thing that came out of the California recall election that was encouraging, it's that the losing side, namely the Republicans, and specifically Larry Elder, the leading GOP alternative to Governor Gavin Newsom, did not contest the results. Elder had hinted about irregularities with the voting even before the voting started, And of course, Donald Trump was omnipresent with his usual conspiracy theories about a fixed election, calling it probably rigged. But if you listen to Elder's concession speech, it sounded like he accepted the results. As you know, my opponent, Governor Gavin Newsom, come on, let's, let's, let's be gracious, let's be gracious in defeat. And by the way, we may have lost the, the battle, but we are going to win the war. Kudos to Elder for breaking from Republican orthodoxy. But Trump remains Trump. In fact, last week, he sent a letter to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State and a Republican, asking him to decertify the election. You know, the election from 320 days ago. Enclosed is a report of 43,000 absentee ballot votes counted in DeKalb County that violated the chain of custody rules, making them invalid, Trump wrote. I would respectfully request that your department check this and, if true, along with many other claims of voter fraud and voter irregularities, start the process of decertifying the election, or whatever the correct legal remedy is, and announce the true winner. Yes, just as O.J. will find the real killer. That was followed by a report in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that Trump was looking for a Republican to challenge Mitch McConnell as the Senate GOP leader. Trump has fumed over McConnell's acceptance of Joe Biden as the rightful winner of the 2020 election, even though the Kentucky lawmaker is probably more responsible than anyone for getting Trump's three Supreme Court nominees confirmed and pushing the Trump agenda in the Senate. Also, in Arizona, where Republicans are continuing to count the ballots from last year's election, despite nationwide ridicule, Trump has endorsed Mark Fincham for Secretary of State in next year's elections. Fincham is a state rep who attended the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and who texted back and forth with the leaders of that effort that day. Trump said he was backing him because, quote, his incredibly powerful stance on the massive voter fraud that took place in a 2020 presidential election scam. And in Michigan, Trump has endorsed Matthew DiPerno for attorney general and Christine Caramo for secretary of state. Both continue to deny Biden's legitimacy as president. Denying the legitimacy of election results may be the new norm. Democracy lies in the balance. Later in the program, we'll hear from an expert on California politics about the real meaning of the recall results. 
But that was not the only race on the ballot last Tuesday. In Boston, Kim Janey, who became the city's first black and first female mayor, actually acting mayor, when the white incumbent, Martin Walsh, was appointed labor secretary in the Biden cabinet, failed to make it to a runoff. The top two finishers, both women, are Michelle Wu and Anissa Isabi-George. Wu is a city councilor and the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants, and she finished with 33% of the vote. Isabi-George, whose parents came from Tunisia and Poland, and who was seen as more moderate than the progressive Wu, received 22.5%. The election is officially nonpartisan, but both women are Democrats. In its history, Boston has never had anything but a white male mayor. The runoff will take place November 2nd. And in Cleveland, another former frontrunner failed to make it to a runoff. Former Democratic congressman, mayor, and presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich finished third in the race to succeed Mayor Frank Jackson, who is retiring after four terms and who is the longest-serving mayor in city history. The two candidates who advanced to the November runoff are Justin Bibb, who had 27% of the vote, and Kevin Kelly, the president of the city council, who finished with 19%. Bibb is black and Kelly is white. It was the latest failure by Kucinich, who was first elected mayor back in 1977. I just want everyone here to know how much I appreciate all of the long hours, the work and the effort. Uh, Thank the people of Cleveland who uh, rallied once again to our side. And I look forward to uh, having an opportunity to spend more time with Elizabeth and to have a chance to be uh, meeting and refreshing all of our friendships that we have uh, gained during this election. Thanks so much to everyone here. And uh, let's continue with the party. Thank you. Some quick campaign updates. Former Nevada Senator Dean Heller, a Republican, has declared his candidacy for governor in next year's election. Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan has joined the large Republican field to succeed the retiring Senator Rob Portman. Dolan is the only one of the candidates who has not reached out to Donald Trump for an endorsement. Not that he would have gotten one anyway. Dolan is the son of the principal owner of the Cleveland Indians baseball team, and Trump is angry over the decision to rename the team the Cleveland Guardians beginning next season. Beto O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman who lost in bids for the Senate and the Democratic presidential nomination, is said to be planning a run for governor next year. And New Jersey GOP gubernatorial nominee Jack Citarelli has named Diane Allen, a former state legislator who ran for the Senate in the 2002 Republican primary, as his choice for lieutenant governor. That may not be big news, but it allows us to offer a little ditty about Jack and Diane. Two American kids done best they can. And speaking of governors, here's this week's trivia question. We know that Donald Trump and George W. Bush, among others, were elected president but had fewer votes than their Democratic opponents. Who was the last governor to be elected, even though he or she had fewer votes than their opponent? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. 
Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. Al Gore was right. We're all gonna die. E-I-I. If he can build the internet, he can make a global warming too. Now he's gonna murder you. <laughs> the shrinking world of anti-Trump Republicans in Congress got a bit smaller last week as Anthony Gonzalez, a two-term representative from the Cleveland suburbs, said he would not run for re-election in 2022. In an interview with the New York Times' Jonathan Martin, Gonzalez, one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, called the former president a cancer for the country. And while he insisted he would win renomination in next year's GOP primary had he run, despite Trump's active opposition, he said, in Martin's words, he could not bear the prospect of winning if it meant returning to a Trump-dominated House Republican caucus. Once seen as a rising star in Congress, Gonzalez was already famous before he first came to Washington as a star-wide receiver for Ohio State. From the shotgun, Smith in the protective pocket. Could not find a receiver. Now goes downfield. Gonzalez got it! Touchdown! Buckeyes strike! Anthony Gonzalez coming off his first start a week ago. 68 yards. A three-man His future seemed limitless until he made the decision to vote to impeach. After he announced he was retiring, the always gracious Donald Trump wrote, One down and nine to go. And good riddance to Anthony. Karen Kassler is the State House Bureau Chief for IdeaStream, the conglomerate of Northeast Ohio public radio stations, as well as for WOSU out of Columbus. Karen, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. Hey, it's great to talk to you, Ken. Well, tell me, were you surprised by his decision? I mean, I guess not really, because I think that there was a lot of pressure on Anthony Gonzalez after that vote to impeach Trump. Uh, there was a primary that he was likely going to have to spend a lot of money on. Uh, Max Miller, former Trump aide who Trump has endorsed and Trump has been campaigning for and fundraising for, was going after him pretty hard. And not only that, but also other people, other Republicans in Ohio in different races. The open U.S. Senate race to replace Rob Portman. The Republican primary for that race has gotten extremely Trumpy, and uh, some of the candidates in that race had been calling for Gonzalez to resign. Even one of his local Republican groups, the Strongsville GOP, which is pretty far in support of Trump, had called on him to resign. So he'd been taking a lot of heat. And I think he was the kind of congressman who really kind of wanted to just go there, put his head down and and do some work. He didn't really like the association with Trump. And so I think this is a a very expected way that he might end his congressional career, because I just I think he was tired of all of it. Well, you know, he never backed away from his vote. Uh, Let me play some tape uh, where he where he defends the vote to impeach. You have to love your country and you have to adhere to your oath more strongly than you do your job. Yes, in the short run, maybe you lose your seat. Maybe you don't get to come back. But in the long arc of history, I believe it was the right vote and I believe it sends the right message. So, Karen, as you said, you know, the local Republicans weren't thrilled about this, right? That they called for his, they voted to censure him, right? They called in him to resign. I mean, that was pretty intense. 
Yeah, and I think that that is the kind of attention he really didn't want. When I interviewed him, when he was going up against a pretty Trump-strong candidate in the primary in 2018 in his first race, I mean, Christina Hagan, she was all about Donald Trump. Uh, Anthony Gonzalez didn't really want to talk about Donald Trump. He said he supported him at the time, but really didn't want to talk about him. And and now I can see, you know, as all of this moved forward, and then, of course, the decision that he made, one of 10 Republicans to make that decision to vote to impeach, that was a big deal. And it turned out for him, he had to have expected that there would be a lot of backlash from so many people in the party who have supported Donald Trump. I, I think that really the pressure was building on him. And, and he said in the article that Jonathan Martin wrote when Martin broke that story, um, an eye-opening moment for him was when he and his family landed at the airport in Cleveland and were escorted by security. I mean, this is a, a guy who lived in Ohio. He was a, an Ohio State football star, like you said. I mean, in Ohio, that's golden. And yet he felt that he was being attacked by people for that vote. And I, I think that he really felt that was a vote that he had to make. He's spoken about this. He's been pretty honest, not only in mainstream media, like with Ideastream, the company that I work for, but also in some of the further right media. He's talked about this vote and defended it, never backed away from it, like you said. He's been, he's received death threats. I mean, he and his family yeah. have seen, received, you know, serious threats. And that's kind of what politics has become. But, you know, we talked about the Ohio Republican leadership, you know, the county Republicans calling for censure and resignation. What about rank and file uh, re uh, voters? What about voters in his district? Well, his district is interesting because, as is happening all around the country, uh, the congressional districts are being redrawn. And in Ohio, we gained population, but not enough to keep up with other states, so we're going to lose one congressional district. So we go from 16 to 15. And I think there was you know, some question about whether Republicans who are going to be drawing those lines, if they would punish Anthony Gonzalez for that vote by drawing out his district. Though I think the conventional wisdom is that Tim Ryan, the Democratic congressman who is now running for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate in Ohio, that his district is the one that's going to go. His district is more toward Youngstown and has gotten a little bit redder over time. But Gonzalez's district has started to get more blue. I mean, he got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, but his district has been trending blue as a lot of suburbs have. And so I think that Looking at that as a possibility and, and the, having those district lines change, that was that had to have been a calculus for him as he's thinking about this upcoming election next year and, and how difficult that primary is going to be, first of all, and then the general. Let me ask you a parenthetical question about the district. I always thought that Ohio had nonpartisan uh, commission that redraws the lines. And you said the Republicans are in charge. Uh, is the GOP running the show here? Well, there's two different. The commission is the one that is going to be drawing and has already just done that, drawn the lines to the state House and Senate. And there's a lot of controversy over that. Republicans dominate that commission. They drew maps that really do appear to be strongly gerrymandered toward Republicans and, and guaranteeing Republican supermajorities in both the Ohio House and Senate. Then state lawmakers will go ahead and draw the lines for the congressional districts. And state lawmakers in Ohio, Republicans do have the majorities in both of those chambers. And so it's very likely that that congressional map is going to be drawn, tipped heavily toward Republicans. We have 12 Republicans 
and four Democrats in Ohio, which is interesting because in Ohio in 2020, 54 percent of Ohioans voted for Trump and 45 percent voted for Biden. So those two percentages don't really match. The map really doesn't reflect how voters actually voted in 2020. And that's something that lawmakers are now grappling with as they're trying to come up with these new maps and, and trying to figure out, you know, what is bipartisan? What is fair? Voters had wanted to change this process and tried to say that they wanted it to be more fair. But that doesn't seem to be the way it's working out. You mentioned Max Miller and the fact that Donald Trump endorsed him. Um, they held this big rally last June, uh, and Miller focused on Gonzalez's vote to impeach. Let me play a little bit of that tape. In a single vote, he betrayed the Republican Party, our president, our values, and most importantly, he betrayed the voters of his district. So, Karen, tell me, uh, who is Max Miller? Well, Max Miller worked in the Trump White House. Um, he obviously is a, a certified friend of Trump in terms of Trump's having a, he has Trump's support, Trump's campaigning for him and fundraising for him. I don't think his fundraising is going as well as some people might have hoped. And, of course, there are also some things that are coming out now about Max Miller, who had a relationship with Stephanie Grisham, uh, the former aide to the first lady, Melania Trump. And uh, there's some allegations that there was some domestic violence in that relationship. So I think a lot of people are going to be learning about Max Miller in the next couple of months. And uh, the question, of course, will be, as it seems to be throughout these races, what does that matter? Or does the only thing that matters is the endorsement from Donald Trump? Those are the questions that I think a lot of Republicans are are wrestling with. Is, is it just about Trump's endorsement or is it about who these candidates are individually? That was, I think, part of what Gonzalez was dealing with, is that he was having to defend his vote to people who had supported Donald Trump and really felt that he had betrayed them. But he felt that this was the only moral vote that he could cast. There was that primary in Columbus not too long ago. Uh, they raced to uh, replace Steve Stivers, who, who, res who resigned. And Basically, the guy who won, um, I think the only reason he won is because Trump endorsed him. Well, yeah, he got twice as, almost, I think almost twice as many votes as the second place candidate. But that was a lot of people involved in that primary and, and some, some names that were fairly well known. But certainly that Trump endorsement was the big thing that put him over the edge. And of course, that's what Trump has been claiming as well, congratulating uh, this guy whose name is uh, Mike Carey on his win. But then you have to look at the district, too. And of course, there is a possibility, even though this district was drawn for a Republican to win. Steve Stivers won that district over and over again before he resigned. Uh, the suburbs have gotten more blue over time. And this is a district that does have some suburban voters in it. I don't think it's going to flip. But the question, of course, will be what role will Donald Trump play in the general election, which is coming up this November. So the person who actually takes that position is going to have to run again next year for the regular congressional election. It's, it's like the, uh, the uh, poor, poor Gavin Newsom in California has to do this all over again next year, yeah, right? Um, exactly. Do you think that with these new allegations or old allegations against Max Miller, and, and with uh, Gonzalez's departure, do you think other Republicans are going to get in the race? I, I think there's a good possibility that that might happen, especially if Miller's 
fundraising doesn't really seem to be going all that well. Now, the question is, of course, who's the Democrat who's going to get into this race? Because now the door is open, potentially, for a good, strong Democrat to jump in. In 2020, again, Gonzalez beat his Democratic opponent by a larger margin than he beat his Democratic opponent in 2016. But if there were a well-known Democrat, who knows what might happen there? And so I think that the opening that Anthony Gonzalez has created by his decision not to run for re-election is really significant here. And I will be really interested to see who steps forward and says they want to run. I mean, a lot of Republicans have already committed to running in other races. And certainly, again, that U.S. Senate race where you've got Josh Mandel, Jane Simpkin, J.D. Vance, and, and several other people who have joined into that and have made that a really a free-for-all. And there way. may be more coming, right? Is that possible? That's right. There's always that possibility because that race has gotten so crowded and everybody is jockeying for the same lane in that race. And, of course, that lane is the Trump lane, at least if you're a Republican candidate. Do you see a future in politics for Gonzalez or, or is that impossible in today's Republican Party? That's a really good question, and I don't know that anybody can answer that because I don't know what we're witnessing the Republican Party go through right now and what might happen in the next six months, year, year or two. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Anthony Gonzalez is going to be just fine. I mean, he's 37 years old. He has an MBA from Stanford, and again, he's got that golden thing on his resume of he played for Ohio State and you know, that, that's a huge deal in Ohio. So I don't think Gonzalez has anything to worry about personally. Whether he might make a comeback, or even if he wants to make a comeback after what, what he's been through over the last couple of years, that's the real question, and only he can answer that. But I think that his statement that Trump is a cancer on the party, that his family has endured death threats, all of these things make one think that maybe he has decided that politics is not where he wants to be, and certainly not right now. Well, today is Saturday, and today is his 37th birthday, so maybe we could just let him enjoy that birthday <laughs> without worrying about anything else for now. Yeah, I mean, this has been probably the longest four years, five years of his life. Um, I, like I said, I think he really did want to get into Congress to talk about business ideas and, and, and things that he felt Republicans really stood for. And then for the whole issue to happen with Trump and for him to make what he felt was the right choice in terms of impeachment for it to turn out the way that it did, I think is, is been a disappointment for him. Uh, but certainly it's, it's an opening for others then, I guess. Karen Kasler is the State House Bureau Chief for IdeaStream and WOSU in Columbus, Ohio. Karen, it was great having you on the show. Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks. If you leave it now, you'll take away the biggest part of me. Governor Gavin Newsom not only survived last week's recall election, but he did so in a landslide. Nearly 64% of California voters opposed the recall, a margin of some 3 million votes. 
And yet, until late polls indicated he would win big, his fate was the number one topic in the political world. What if he were recalled? What if California voters picked conservative radio talk show host Larry Elder as their next governor? What would it say about abortion and climate change and a vaccine mandate and other issues? Well, those questions are moot because the recall was defeated. So why did it lose? What does it say about Newsom's job approval? And whither the Republican Party in California and nationwide? I'm about to ask this of Miriam Powell. She's a former reporter and editor with Newsday and the Los Angeles Times. We had her on The Political Junkie a few years ago to talk about her wonderful biography, The Browns of California. And we have her back again to make sense of Tuesday's results. Miriam, thanks for being here. Sure. Happy to be here, and I'll try my best to make sense of things. (laughs) Well, lots of luck with that. I know there are a lot of comparisons to California 2003 when Governor Gray Davis was recalled, but the times were different, the demographics were different, the candidates were different. Yeah, I, I don't think that those comparisons are terribly useful. I mean, the only thing that they have in common really is that they were the two recalls that actually made the ballot and that there were Democratic incumbents. But other than that, um, you know, it's just it's a very different electorate. It's a very different governor, a different point in his career, different set of issues. So um, and, and, and the composition, when I say a different electorate, both in terms of the demographics of who are voters in California and how that's changed in the last 18 years, but also um, as part of that, the registration numbers, which are you know, significantly different now than they were um, in 2003. So I don't know that there's all that much sort of useful in in comparing them at this point. Um, and obviously, partly for those reasons, they had very different results. Well, also, we, I mean, just to, just to go back to 2003 for a second, we had a governor then uh, that had 30% approval ratings, and that was not the case with Gavin Newsom. Right. You had an extremely unpopular governor, Gray Davis, who had barely won re-election sort of rather narrowly against a, a Republican nobody and who then was beset with these crises having to do with the uh, the electricity crisis and power shortages and unpopular acts, including raising um, uh, the car tax registration and other things. So there was a lot of, um, you know, he had a lot of ground to catch up. And you had Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was, um, you know, a very formidable candidate and both obviously one of the best-known people on the planet and and also, you know, not to, to give him short shrift just as a celebrity. I mean, he had been engaged in political activities. He had been the sponsor of an after-school activities referendum, uh, you know, had been interested in a political career and was married into the Kennedy family. So, um, you know, it, just a very different dynamic from what we found in the, in, in the last few months. Okay, so let's, let's uh, fast forward to 2021. There was a a poll out early this summer that seemed to indicate voters were split down the middle on Newsom's recall. Um, That got a lot of Democrats nervous. And it seemed like until then, they weren't paying that much, you know, that close attention to the recall while Republicans were fired up. Right. So, you know what, it's, we will never know whether how accurate that poll was. It certainly was helpful in, in motivating Democrats to vote. I mean, it's, the calculus this year was really pretty straightforward. Democrats outnumber Republicans in California two to one. Democrats were overwhelmingly opposed to what the leading Republican 
candidate who you mentioned, Larry Elder, who was the conservative radio host, um, all of the things that he represented, which were, you know, essentially uh, an agenda arguably to the right of Trump. So the key for, for Gavin Newsom to succeed in, in fighting off the recall was really simply to get Democrats to vote. And, you know, there was a poll, as you mentioned, there were a couple of polls that showed that Democrats were sort of less likely to vote than Republicans um, who were, you know, it was dubbed the so-called enthusiasm gap at the time. Now, that poll was done more than a month before the election, before ballots went out, before there was really a lot of attention. Obviously, in this time when we're still grappling with the pandemic and all of its ramifications, people are not necessarily that focused. People who are not political junkies and are not listening to your show every week, you know, are not necessarily focused on, oh, there's an election coming. So were they really not motivated to vote or had they just really not thought about it yet? Uh, You know, we'll never know the, the, the answer to that question. But in the end, um, it probably, you know, did help to be motivated the fear of a Republican winning, a very conservative Republican, certainly motivated a lot of people to vote. And, you know, another thing which I think is really interesting and, and will help spin this conversation forward a little bit was the fact that for the second time, this was done in 2020 also, every registered voter in California received a ballot in the mail. And that was done in 2020 in response to COVID, but was also sort of consistent with a lot of efforts that the state of California has made, contrary to some other parts of the country, to increase voter access. Um, we also have same-day voter registration and, and, and motor voter registration, so people get automatically registered when they get um, a driver's license. So, so California's done a lot to try to increase turnout and, and voter participation. Um, but it, this, so, so COVID then becomes a motivation in 2020 in the presidential election for mailing everyone a ballot because of all the concerns about showing up in person and voting and so forth. That was very successful in spurring turnout. We had a record, I think it was 82% turnout in the November 2020 election. So this time around for the recall, the legislature, heavily dominated by Democrats, said, let's do this again, and mailed ballots to everyone. And once again, we were, they're still counting ballots. We don't have a final number, but the, the turnout is going to be maybe 55%, which is really high for a special election in the middle of nothing with only one question on the ballot. And a lot of that is being attributed to the success of this mail-in vote. I mean, the election voting now is a month-long process in California. People get ballots. They can mail those ballots in. The postage is paid, so you don't have to do anything other than drop your ballot into the mailbox. And then there are also early voting centers where people can go and vote in person um, for sort of more than a week before the election day. So all of... And I was going to say, and as you point out, this happened in a state that encourages more, you know, a bigger, bigger electorate, whereas there are many states and many led by Republican governors and state legislatures that discourage or even try to impede voting. Exactly. So we, you know, that is some, a place where California stands out. In many ways, California is not that different. It's as different from the rest of the country as some people would like to, to believe in as it often gets portrayed. But that is an area where I think, you know, California does stand out and is really kind of pioneering some efforts to 
um, to get universal voting, you know, or to, to, to encourage people to vote. So I think you're going to see there are now proposals to make this permanent, the mailing of ballots to everyone. And I think that's something that, you know, is likely to happen and, and it's going to be a ramification because, you know, a lot of the questions about voting patterns were that, that showed up in 2020 were, well, is this going to be a trend or is this, you know, unique to a, an election where Donald Trump is on the ballot in the middle of a pandemic? And, uh, you know, so, so some, of, some of what people looked at, people who were analyzing and thinking about elections and voter participation, one of the things they looked at in this recall is, are we going to see a continuation of those trends? And the answer is yes. You know, and, and another kind of interesting twist there, it used to be Republicans would mail in ballots early and you had a early, you know, and when the election night returns would show up, they would post the first returns and it would be a heavy Republican thing. And everybody would say, don't worry, because the Democrats show up late, right, because they vote late and they vote in person. And what we saw in 2020 was that that began to flip and it continued to be a flip here because the Republicans, you know, are certainly a, a, a wing of them and, and, and what the, the Republican Party in California has become increasingly, which is a very extremist Trump-based group, the whole idea of being suspicious of the mail and the ballots and all this. So they were encouraged to show up in person. And we saw that in 2020. And we saw that again um, in, in, in the special election. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, there were many things about Newsom's record that voters didn't care about, you know, and of course we have to mention the mask, the famous mask, maskless lunch at the French laundry restaurant, which, you know, it screamed hypocrisy and elitism, but Newsom and the Democrats turned this whole recall thing into a referendum on what Larry Elder and, uh, and the other Republicans would bring to the job. So that it was less about, it seemed less about Gavin Newsom and more about Elder and Trumpism. Correct. I, I mean, and, and I think this works very much to Newsom's advantage that whereas in theory a recall is a referendum on the incumbent, he and the Democrats very much turned it around into, as you say, you know, a contrast between him and a conservative Republican. And, you know, in, in a state like California, uh, that, ha- that, that will, is guaranteed to produce the lopsided result that it did. And, I mean, Elder played into that and the Republicans played into that by not having any sort of a, you know, moderate candidate really who, you know, was credible in any sense. And, um, you know, so I think we did, it did show us some things about what the Republican Party or Republicanism in California has become. And that, like in, in a lot of parts of the country, um, you have a, you know, a, a very strong sort of extremist wing. Um, you know, Donald Trump got 6 million votes in California. I mean, California is so big that even if there are a small minority of people, there's still a lot of them. And and that was what was driving the elder support and to some extent driving the recall. But I, I think you're exactly right. It's not that people are necessarily that happy with Gavin Newsom in general on a lot of the sort of underlying really critical issues facing California involving inequality and housing and wildfires and climate change and things like that. But none of those became really the motivating issue for voters in this election. It became, as Newsom, um, you know, really was good at crystallizing it in the final weeks, that this was a life or death election, that the vaccine mandates, the one issue on which Newsom gets consistently his highest marks right now is his 
handling of the pandemic, um, in, in, in recent you know, people have short memories, so nobody's too worried about what they thought about what he did a year ago, but what they think about what he's doing right now, which has been mask mandates in schools and, you know, taking a, a pretty hard line on, on vaccinations, and that's very popular right now, you know, even among Republicans. Yeah, you were talking about the uh, about how the Republicans and Larry Elder moved, you know, their party further to the right. There was once upon a time, Kevin Faulkner was seen as, the the new face of California Republicans, a, a moderate who can appeal to Democrats, uh, someone who could win statewide. But but he finished poorly on Tuesday. You know, right wing Republicans didn't trust him. And the word now is that Larry Elder is the de facto head of the party. So when you have a candidate or a party that who has views on uh, vaccine mandates and minimum wage and guns and climate control and abortion, they're so far to the right of the voters, way out of the mainstream how does a Republican ever win again statewide if the faces of the party are, down, are Larry Elder and Donald Trump? I would disagree a little bit on one thing, which is the idea that Larry Elder is the de facto head of the party. I don't think, I think Larry Elder is a talk show host who has increased, you know, for many people who entered this recall, the point of it was to gain more attention and celebrity and, you know, for their own personal aggrandizement, i.e. Caitlyn Jenner. And I think Elder, it's the same thing. We've already seen that he's increased his, you know, numbers, the number of stations who are carrying his program and stuff. And, and I think he even said in an interview the other day that, you know, he doesn't really see how he could run statewide successfully because of all the reasons that, you know, you just said. So I don't think that he is going to be the face of the Republican Party or the head of the Republican Party. I think what it showed us is that there was either, you know, there for all the purposes, there is no Republican Party in any organized way. I mean, they squandered what was certainly their best chance to have a viable candidate because, you know, they could, the way the recall was structured, they could have won with less than half of the vote if the recall had actually passed. And there was nobody, and as you say, Kevin Faulkner, who was the mayor of San Diego, the second largest city in California, did two terms as mayor, um, you know, should have been under some scenarios that Schwarzenegger-like Republican candidate who could have um, appealed to centrists and to people who are not that happy with Gavin Newsom for various reasons, um, and, and he, you know, went down in flames. So I don't know. You know, I don't, does that mean that forever Republicans are not going to win in California? And probably not. I mean, things things change very quickly here um, in many ways. But it's certainly, you know, no, the, the, the last time any Republican won a statewide race was in 2006, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger's re-election campaign. Um, and then Steve Poisner, who was elected statewide the same year as insurance superintendent has since changed his registration to independent. So there is certainly a dearth of, you know, of, of any sort of moderate Republicans who could compete statewide. Well, then, d- does this say anything about Newsom and his reelection chances uh, for next year? Um, you know, it's hard to see how Elder or Faulkner or any Republican could do better than we saw on Tuesday. I think that's right. I mean, I think that he should have a very easy time. I mean, certainly no Republicans would be competitive. Now, we should remind people that in California, we no longer have party primaries. So what we have is a so-called, sometimes called the jungle primary, but essentially the top two candidates in the June first election primary advance to November. So 
you could potentially have a situation where you have two Democrats on the ballot in November. Um, I don't think, I think Newsom, you know, demonstrated sufficient strength in his numbers and so forth that even though um, there are people particularly on the left who are not all that thrilled with him, um, I don't think anybody is going to be able to mount a very serious challenge. Well, you know, we, we heard from the left uh, for most of the three years about Newsom about their unhappiness, but I thought the party looked surprisingly united during the recall. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was a very strong strategic move on Newsom's part, um, and I argued in a piece of the New York Times early on that this might be good for Newsom, was not necessarily good for California, was the Democrats, they were able to really strong-arm Democrats in an unusually successful way in California um, to to stay off the ballot. So that, you know, there could have, you could have had a situation as we had in 2003, where the Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante, then, then Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante, ran as a candidate with the idea that you should vote no on the recall, but vote for him just in case it passes. So what's left for Newsom? I mean, let's, let's assume he wins re-election next year. He's not eligible for third successive term. Um, He was once talked about as a possible White House contender, but, you know, he's obviously not going to run as long as Kamala Harris is in the picture. What's next for him? Presumably, I mean, certainly, you know, I don't think there's any secret, there's been any secret that that has been his ambition and everyone around him. And, you know, to some degree, anybody who's governor of California becomes a a potential candidate. We don't know what's going to happen with Kamala Harris and and so forth. So, I, you know, I suppose he could spend four years starting to run for president in 2028 or whatever year it would be. Let me ask you one final question. Is there national significance to these results? And the reason I ask that, I, you know, I see in Virginia, um, Terry McAuliffe is clearly trying to return uh, by tying his Republican opponent to Donald Trump on, on vaccines and health care and abortion. And Democrats may look at this as a roadmap for 2022, at least in states where Trump is unpopular. Uh, I, absolutely true. Um, there's a lot. Ron Brownstein has written a lot on this particular subject and really push that idea that this is a strategy that, you know, Democrats like to think that they can run on their records and tell people all the good things they're doing. But in fact, the more effective strategy right now is to run, you know, what we consider a negative campaign and to run against, you can still run against Trump or against Trump Republicanism effectively, and that that is what this shows. I mean, the caveat there, I think, I'm, I'm, I, this is beyond my pay grade in expertise, but I think that you know, California is a state where there are twice as many Democrats as Republicans. So, yeah, if you run against Trump Republicans in a state where you're that's overwhelmingly Democratic, that's a good strategy. I think we have to see how does that play out in spaces, you know, in places that are more purple. And as far as Republican strategy, we saw, you know, Trump and even Elder had warned before the vote that it was fixed. You know, it was rigged, just as Trump said about 2020. And it seems to be a growing Republican plan that any election where they're not likely to win is going to be rigged, that they lose because it was stolen. That could be a future Republican strategy. Right. Now, there was an interesting back and forth where the one of the key campaign strategists for Kevin Faulkner really lit into the elder campaign in the postmortem saying, you know, because they actually had a website up before the election saying 
it's rigged and Newsom won because of fraud before any votes, you know, before the election day, right, before any votes were counted. And, and Ron Nering said, you know, way to go telling people not to trust the process. I mean, you know, talk about ways to depress turnout. You people, you know, basically told told everyone, you know, you told your told Republicans, don't bother voting because it's not going to be, you know, a fair election. That's what Trump did in Georgia before the special Senate elections. He said That's right. it's going to be exactly. fixed and it, it had to depress Republican votes. Exactly. Okay, so $276 million and 10, 11 million votes later, uh, what do we know? What have we learned? We learned that mail-in ballots are effective. You know, I think that's something that is an interesting, like, you know, that, that, that if you make it easy for people to vote, they are more likely to vote. And I, I you know, that is maybe something that is obvious to many people, but I think we, we show that, that that works even in an election that is, you know, not not really in the mainstream and that is an, an unusual one. Um, we also learned that right now, at this moment, running on vaccine mandates and masks and, you know, good public health and and, and supporting all of those issues with that public safety, that that is a very effective strategy right now. Um, and we learned that the Republicans are, and the last thing I would say is we learned that the Republican Party in California, you know, is, is totally imploded. We kind of knew that before, too, but it just is, uh, you know, it's not a force statewide. Marion Powell is a political writer based in Los Angeles. She's now a guest essayist for The New York Times and is the author of a great biography, The Browns of California. Miriam, I, I can't recall a better writer than you. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Ken. That's very sweet of you to say, and it was my pleasure. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. I'll see you soon. <laughs>